Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. You got my number, so now, if you need me for anything more, I'm more than happy to do it. Maybe a new host. I'd like to get rid of one of these guys, Joel. Maybe you could host a podcast. Hi again, everybody. It's Jungle Jim Jerome coming at you with another episode of Inside Curling. This is the week of December 13th. Thank you very much for uh, joining us and uh, tuning in show after show after show. Uh, We want to fully recognize, of course, all our sponsors, Sports Interaction, who brings you what is happening around the curling world, Nestle Boost, the sponsor of Mailbag, and Coyote Tractor, who sponsors Hot Rock Topics. And Goldline, big segment for us all the time, brings you in the house. And we do have a guest today. We'll surprise you, so you have to stay tuned. Here's what's on the show today, the third Grand Slam of the year is wrapped up. The WFG Masters was completed Sunday in Oakville. Uh, We're going to take a look at this. Kevin, you were there. Uh, Warren, you watched it. Also in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, the Everest Canadian Seniors. We're going to give you some results there and the boys' reaction to it. Uh, We talked last week about an interesting event taking place in Finland between December 8th and the 19th. Canada's never been a part of this. It is the World Junior B Curling Championships, or in other words, the World Juniors Relegation Rounds. A big event that happened, and uh, we're going to see how Canada is managing there. Two weeks ago, we announced the Tim Hortons uh, is departing from the Briar. They're only going to do it for another year. We're going to take a look at the Briar sponsorship since the start of the Briar in uh, 1927. God, Warren, you were like 30 years old by then. (laughs) (laughs) I remember it well, Jim. (laughs) Yeah, uh, and Mailbag. God, we got a packed show. Uh, We talked on the show last week about the junior age. Everyone's all pissed about whether they should be 20, 21, 22. Uh, But it's a lively discussion. So we're going to check out an email there from a junior player who's who's weighing in on it. Uh, That's Braden Sinclair, uh, who's going to show us how it's impacting his team and the other junior teams. All right, in the house, here it is. Joel Returnas is going to be our guest. Joel, you guys laughed at me when I said, how many Grand Slams has... He won. Oh, way to go, Jim. Embarrassed myself again. One, Jim. It was the most historic win ever <laughs> last week. So, What's happening around the curling world? Brought to you by Sports Interaction. You want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction. Get in on the action and make a play at Sports Interaction. You got to be 19 and living in Ontario. And please play responsibly. And they take action on curling, baby. That all makes sense. The third Grand Slam of the year. The WFG Masters was completed in Oakville. Kevin, you were there. Tell us all about it. Give us a rundown. The weather was pretty darn good compared to Alberta, too, Jimmy. We only had to have a fairly light jacket versus the parka that we've had on at home here. Let's talk about the women's quarters. A team that just really impresses me uh, more and more all the time, and that's uh, Gim out of South Korea, Unji Gim. Since she brought on Minji Kim, that team has become a real force, and that's somebody we need to watch going forward. She played Jennifer Jones in the semi, one nine six, so beat uh, Jennifer out on that one. Team laws skipped by Selena Negevin, because Caitlin, of course, is expecting. Um, they had just a great week, but they ended up losing to Tabitha Peterson out of the U.S., 6-5. So that's a big win for, for Tab to get to the semi in, in a slam. Uh, Rachel Holman, which, of course, has Tracy Fleury skipping, playing against Hasselborg in the quarters, at home and one now, no, Sarah, Sarah McManus wasn't there because she's expecting. That weakens Hasselborg's team when you're missing Sarah McManus. So 5-2 home and wins. Carrie Anderson in an extra end over Chelsea Carey. Nice to see Chelsea Carey back doing well. In the semis, Anderson had, didn't have any trouble with Tabitha Peterson, 8-3. And uh, Team Holman played very well against Gim and won 5-3. Real good game. Those are two teams that they'll meet each other lots over the next few years, both curling really well. In the women's final... It was a Canadian battle of Anderson versus uh, uh, Holman, and that went an extra end. What a great game. And in the end, uh, Carrie Anderson had to make an intern double, and it was hanging for quite a while, and they just got it to carve up enough 
to make the double and win the game. So a fantastic finish. Congratulations to Kerry, who right away took off, Jim, from Oakville and just landed in Japan. They're curling in Japan this week. So you go right from a slam right to competing in Asia. Incredible. What, what, a, what a dedicated bunch. Anyway, quarters in the men's. What a game that was. 5-4 for Botcher in an extra end again. So lots of extra ends, lots of great games. Team of Dean, that's, of course, Oscar Erickson. Really, Ramsfell, uh, Magnus Ramsfell, played great. This is a team. Had, actually uh, had a nice chat with Magnus after the day was done on Saturday night after they lost the semi to uh, Bruce Mowat. Real excited about being part of the Grand Slam group, being one of the teams, getting to compete against all these tough teams. Because it's just, most curling events don't have that kind of depth where you play Bruce Mowat. Well, guess what? If you win that one or lose, your next game is against Brad Guju. <laughs> then your next one's against Nicodine, and then so on, so on. Like, slams are so hard. And that's what Magnus is just loving about it. But anyway, they won 7-3. to three. Retornaz over uh, Yannick Schwaller, and Benoit Schwartz, of course, uh, who used to be with the Cruz, throws last rocks there. That was 6-2 to two for Retornaz. Got Italy to the semi. And uh, Bruce Mowat uh, against his countryman, uh, Ross White, had no trouble there. So the semifinals were Bruce Mowat against Ramsfell. And that was not a close game. It was 7-1. to one. The semi botcher against Retornaz. Unreal. Six straight blank ends. Mike Harris um, on the broadcast was joking. He was right behind that sheet. Nothing in play basically for six ends. They were two ends ahead of everybody else because they're just ha hammering everything. And in the seventh end, Joel Retornaz makes a beautiful, on his first one, he came around and came a little bit deep, which means it overcurled. So Brendan Botcher came down, bumped it, and rolled to the open. So Retornaz has to come around, but now he's had a practice one. Got to remember when you blank six straight ends, nobody's played a soft shot. Nobody's drawing. Nobody's playing taps or anything because it's just open hits. Of course, you give this an athlete like him two chances. He puts it perfect, right? Buried completely in the top forefoot. And Botcher went to dig it out. Once again, nobody had played a soft shot, so you didn't even know how much it would curl. They missed that shot. Retornaz stole one, forced an eight with a double, then a run back, and then won it in the, uh, in the extra end. So unbelievable game, Jim. And then the final was just uh, an incredible lesson in curling by uh, Team Italy and Joel Retornaz. They made everything for the first four ends. Yeah, first five ends, actually. They uh, they really had Bruce Mowat forced in five as well. They're up four and nothing after four, getting one in the first, stealing two, stealing three, stealing four. And then Bruce made about a 15, 20-foot angle raised double to get two points in the fifth, or else it would have been five nothing. And I think Bruce was going to shake if he didn't make that shot. So great uh, congratulations to Retornaz, but... What a grand slam. The The playoffs were absolutely outstanding, Jim. I, I want to get uh, Warren's reaction to this as well and yours, Kevin. Uh, you know, ever since we've been doing the podcast, one of the things that always comes up is, you know, fans saying, I can't stand these blank ends. Uh, as you just pointed out, six blank ends in a row. What's your reaction, Kevin, to that? In this situation, there are four games on the ice. So everybody can just kind of ignore that one because there was lots of action on the other three. But you're right. I don't understand it. It's an entertainment game. And uh, so to play it that open, I, I don't get it. I was surprised that Botcher didn't go after it in the fourth end. Like you can start the game kind of open, whatever. In four, I, I really thought, you know what? You're in the even ends. Mm -hmm. Try to get your deuce. I was surprised that there wasn't kind of a more aggressive action in four. Certainly in six. Mm -hmm. um, really surprised me because you, you, you earn the hammer. Mm-hmm one way or another. In Botcher's case, he went undefeated during the event. Mm -hmm. So they earned the right to have that hammer, but didn't use it. That was odd. I, I thought that was unusual. Um, I, I think I think if Brendan looks back, he'd go, gee, I wish I would have gambled more in four and six. Yeah, I'm more asking, Warren, from the fans' perspective. Uh, I know you've been outspoken about this. What, what, what do you say when you see these ends go six in a row that are blanked? From an entertainment point of view, it, it's not the best situation. And we can go back to the 80s when uh, we were dealing with very straight ice conditions, mainly because of, of the stones. But uh, the cry from the crowd in the 2-1 games was boring. And defense in any sport is boring. Watch soccer. <laughs> so I think entertainment is scoring. And I think that needs to be concerned. But I think the big issue, it's the importance of Last Rock has become so huge in this game, particularly Last Rock in that last end. And so there's a constant jockeying for position to try and maintain that control is what's going on. I'm not sure what the solution is. It's maybe something that needs to be looked at uh, down the road. I look at the skins game concept, deals with that very nicely. 
But uh, there's no question that six uh, blank ends in a row is not good entertainment in, in today's world. So let's just go down these scores. So in the women's quarters, 9665524-8353. Men's, 5473627371. And then the Botcher return as game 3-1. Every other game in the entire playoffs were high scoring. Okay. Including the finals. The women's final was 6-5 and men's uh, 6-2 and ended early. I, I'm not sure it's a huge concern, Jim, to be honest. Okay. Because it, it doesn't happen very often. Like, most of the Grand Slam of curling games are, they're just wild. <laughs> right. And and they all were. Like, I read you all the scores of all the playoff games, other than the botcher return as game, which is a weird one. Like, uh, curling's really good right now, I think. It, we couldn't have had better playoffs than that Grand Slam. My goodness, they were good. Oh. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a thing of... Uh of the eighties primarily. And I don't think, again, it's a big issue. Not, not at this point. Anyway, I, I don't see any indication that that's the way people are going to start playing. Uh, it's changed. Warren, what do you take away from the rest of the curling that was on, on the weekend? Well, I'll make a couple of quick comments because Kevin's covered it pretty well. But uh, one of my observations was, I think an interesting one on the men's side in the final eight teams, six of them were European, two of them Canadians. And on the women's side, it was the reverse. And if we look a couple of years ago, I think that everybody had a concern that it was the Canadian women that were sliding behind the rest of the world a bit. But uh, maybe that's changed a little. And the fact that uh, you got six European teams out of eight in that final showdown. Uh, I was very impressed with Magnus Ramsfall. Thought that those guys are showing a lot of promise. His famous father, I'm sure, was smiling in the background. Everybody remembers Eigel mm-hmm. from the 80s and 90s, three-time world champion. Uh, won uh, the first Olympic demonstration in Calgary in 1988. So comes from a well-known curling family, and I think those guys are going to be contenders going forward. They did very well until they ran into the Italian Ferraris. Oh, yeah, good. In the semifinals, and they didn't have a lot of shot there, but uh, they'll be around. I look at the World Championship this year after that weekend. I think there's going to be five teams or five countries from Europe that are going to be Really tough. It'll be Mowat, be Ramsfeld, Aiden, Schwaller, and Rotanus. And uh, right out of the gate, you know, all five of them are going to be there. Corey Dropkin's probably going to be there from the U.S. So there's six teams right out of the gate that Canada's going to have to really play well to deal with. On the women's side, as I mentioned, interesting, it was the opposite, where uh, there were six North American teams because one of those teams uh, was American. Uh, Peterson was in there and two Europeans. So it was a little bit reverse of what took place on the men's side. Carrie Anderson, again, uh, that's an amazing team. They're still kind of unassuming, but man, they come to play, and they do play. And I mean, that was her fifth slam final in a row. Got her first victory in a slam this year. She'd been in the finals of the two previous, but uh, what a record. So three-time in a row Canadian champion, right? five-time in a row slam finalist. You don't get much better than that. So they're certainly going to be a team to watch on the Canadian side. And the Holman team, watching them carefully again, played extremely well, but it's kind of uh, interesting. Rachel is really the one in charge of that team, uh, without question, as far as everything that's going on. And Tracy's calling the shots when Rachel is not in the house uh, holding it for Tracy, but uh, Rachel is in charge, without question. Great event, uh, Kevin. Great job, too, by the way. It's terrific how the wall-to-wall coverage on Sportsnet is is out there. It's really really good. Everyone get ready uh, because I made some picks after you guys made some picks for the event. It was top two teams. Who was going to be in the final? Warren has it all laid out. So tell, tell us who Kevin picked, who you picked, Warren. <laughs> and then, folks, get ready to rumble with mine. Jim, I've got the finals here, so I can tell you who I picked. Okay. I picked Holman against Anderson, Retornaz against Mowat, four for four. So that was easy. Shit. Hundred <laughs> percent. I was just one out uh, with uh, Butcher, who was the one I picked to go against Mowat. So I was three out of four. Jim, do you want to tell us how you did? Fellas, get ready. <laughs> Gushu, Adine, Jones, and Einerson. All right, let's go to the next topic. Let's go. Come on, we got to move along. Yeah, I went one. I went one and three. Anyway, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do picks anymore. Okay, that's enough of that. Uh, we're in the Everest Canadian Seniors Championship wrapped up last Saturday in Nova Scotia. What do you got for us? I think the big news out of that event was on the women's side, and that uh, Saskatchewan Sherry Anderson won her record fifth straight Canadian Senior Women's Championship. 
with a 7-3 win over Chantel Osborne of Quebec. So playing with Sherry Anderson. Third, Patty Hersekorn. Second, Brenda Gertzen. And at lead, Anita Silvernagel. So that's quite an accomplishment. I don't think uh, there's been a similar record in any other Canadian championship where somebody has won it five times in a row. On the men's side, Howard Rajala of Ontario defeated James Paul of Alberta 7-6 in the final. In the bronze medal game, it was Randy Newfell of Manitoba over Gwen McLeod of Nova Scotia. So playing with Howard Rajala out of Ontario was third Rich Moffat, second Chris Fulton, and lead Paul Maiden. So congratulations to both those winners. And I guess from everything I was able to read, it was a great event in Nova Scotia. And thank you to Everest for being the sponsor of the Canadian Seniors. Thanks a lot, everyone. Uh, that's We bring you up to speed every week on what's happening around the curling world. We're in Hot Rock Topics, brought to you by Coyote Tractor. If you have work to do, Coyote has the tractors, UTVs, and ZTRs to do it. We dig dirt. Two weeks ago, we mentioned that Curling Canada had announced that Tim Hortons would no longer be the title sponsor of the Briar after 2023 uh, in London. Warren, you wrote a story about this on Facebook, about the Briar and uh, where it all started, 1927, uh, when the Briar started. Talk about it, Warren. I guess it's unique because the Briar is soon going to be 100 years old. 2029, it'll be, I think, the 100th uh, Briar. So it's been around for a while. There's been four title sponsors since day one. The first one everybody's aware of, I think, is McDonald Tobacco for the first 50 years. In 1980, Labette Breweries came in as a sponsor, and things changed a little, but it was still, they owned the event from top to bottom, signage, everything about it. Curling Canada, then the Canadian Curling Association, took up the operation of the event between the boards, but it was still pretty much a Labatt show. They did a fantastic job. They took curling into kind of a new level with what they did with the Briar, and they made it really, really a focus uh, curling event for not just Canada, but I thought pretty much for the world back in those days. And actually, 1992, Labatt's indicated that after 94, they would be stepping back as the title. So let's go back to what's happened here and recently. On November 29th, that Tim Hortons announced that uh, after this briar in London this coming March, that they'll be stepping back as the title sponsor. The big question on everyone's mind is, why is the Donut King leaving? Could be many things, but maybe it's just time to move on. But let's talk about a couple of things that could be influencing their decision. In 2014, Tim Hortons was purchased by a Brazil-based 3G Capital, and they actually merged with Burger King. And interesting enough, the head office that company is in Toronto because for taxation reasons, they moved it out of the United States. So when Tim Hortons arrived on the scene back in 2005, the Briar was riding the crest of the wave. Biggest Briar in history, attendance of 280,000, very strong television ratings, very strong brand identification in the market. Uh, it was a total uh, interprovincial territorial competition, much like it had been for 75 years. But now again, Things have changed considerably. The numbers attending the Briar will continue to drop and continue to age unless something is done to change the event to make it more appealing to a younger demographic. The live audience of the Briar today is currently closer to 80,000 rather than the 280 that was there in 2005, which is what was there when Tim Hortons came on board. When Tim Hortons came on board, the Briar was a clear bit of Canadiana as an interprovincial territory competition. It has become an 18-team championship that has a flavor of Canadiana, but also as a high-performance event, as in fact sort of a hybrid trying to service two masters. Will this be a concern for a sponsor? And any corporate entity considering a sponsorship as large as the Briar will have a lot of questions and demands. I don't think it will be hard to find a new sponsor. What I think will be the challenge will be to find one with the same uh, financial contribution that Tim Hortons was making. Those are my reads in the whole situation. Kevin, how do you see it? Well, I think the the, the big thing uh, in uh, from my point of view with Seasons of Champions um, is that it's it's not as long of a a, a buy anymore for a, from a timescale perspective per year. I think that's probably the biggest thing because you've got the what happened this year, the points bet event in September, um, but then there wasn't another event until the Scotties. I think that's true. There's nothing else yep. all the way through to the Scotties. So that's kind of a one-off. And then many months later, um, you got the Scotties and then the Briar, of course. And, and then one of the worlds, whichever one's in Canada. This year, it's the men's in Ottawa. Um, and But the women's will be in Sweden. And uh, they won't have, I don't think, they'll have any involvement in the, uh, in the women's much. So you've got three events, which is good over, you know, 
a little over a month, um, but not the three, four months that traditionally um, the season champions was over. So that's, um, that, I, I think that would impact uh, the potential sponsor, you know, when it comes to, if we want to just talk about the slams for a second, because um, the first one's, you know, end of September, early October, something like that. And then in November, December, January, and then April uh, for the next one and early May. So you almost get a full year of, of, uh, of a wave to ride if you're involved with that group. And that's kind of what was like with Curling Canada and the Seasons of Champions. It made a lot of sense, I think. Like you, you got a, a, a lot of the year, almost a half a year of, of coverage. Yep. Um, so I, I see that being an, an issue. Now, now, could there be new events popping up? You know, is there going to be something that replaces the Canada Cup? Is there going to be something that replaces the Continental Cup? Maybe. I, I, I haven't heard of it. But that you know that could restore that that season um, if 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 that's the way they're going. But otherwise, it's it's not nearly the season that it once was. So you don't get quite as much uh, uh, amount of the calendar. I think that's in in my world that that's kind of the the biggest thing from a from an event standpoint, as far as I see. What do you think about the issue we've talked about so much as to what is the Briar today? It was once, uh, as I mentioned, an interprovincial competition. <laughs> Now it's kind of an interprovincial competition, but it's also pretty much a high-performance competition. The fact is determining who's going to represent Canada into a very increasingly more difficult world. Um, That's a tough question like you a, just asked, it's, Warren. It's, 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 it's a hybrid event. It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not one, it's not the other. So right. I'm wondering, is that going to impact uh, somebody's uh, thoughts and looking at it? It's really not. It depends who you ask. So we had Brad uh, Guju on the show. Say, we've had Brad on lots, but... When we had Brad on a year and a half ago or two years ago, one of the first times he was on, uh, he thought it was important that it be the traditional provincial event, which was back when, when I was curling in it when I was young. It was awesome. Great. But now the last time or the last second time, a couple times ago that Brad was on, um, he said, you know, I'm kind of changing my mind on this one. You know, <laughs> I think it's more of a high performance now. And... Uh, and Brad's right. I, I I can't answer that question. You asked me what I think it is. I, I don't I don't know the answer. And you know, and, and uh, um, obviously it has to be high performance to a certain degree because we're we're trying to pick the person who we think can be in the ladies and men's curling on the podium. That's really important. At least I think it is. Um, yep, you know, to try to important. get on the on the podium. So it has to be it has to be primarily high performance because the reason to have the national championship is to pick a team to go to the international championship. So um, I think that that's got to be first and foremost. Now, from a cultural and love of the game and love of the Briar and Scotties um, cultural event, uh, yes, um, a lot of people feel that way as well. Um, and, and that's important to the fans. But I think from a, from a sports um, situation where we're trying to get funding um, for our athletes so that our young athletes can get better and better and have a... Uh, you know, a good chance of getting on the podium. It has to be considered high performance first. I think first of all, right, Tim Hortons deserves a lot of credit for, you know, when you hear Warren talk about a, a declining audience and, and that sort of stuff. And those guys were involved a long time. You know, I, I don't know if curling is completely to blame for dying audiences and, and sponsors pulling out. You're seeing that in all sorts of things. Well, I think your first point is a good one. It's not just curling that's uh, dealing with the dropping of audiences, particularly from, from a live point of view, and I think it's partly to do with the moving demographic. The big baby boomer plug is, go, is moving through into their 60s now, and that's where a huge number of the spectators came from in all sports. And the way the world is moving, the people under 40, the Gen Z, young millennials, the manner in which how most of these sports are packaged at the moment, and we won't get into the details of that, it's not appealing to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, they simply aren't attending or paying any attention in numbers that are going to matter going forward. And it's, I think everybody's going to have to adjust right. to uh, their product to make it acceptable to that age category. And I think there's a lot of things that could be done without getting into it, but I think Curling is right up there with having difficulties. We're, we're doing the same old thing pretty much the same old way, particularly in our clubs, and, and wondering why we're not attracting people under 40. Some people are dealing with it differently. A guy like Chuck Dyer in Kelowna, he's approaching the uh, desires of this younger generation. But mm -hmm. most sports aren't. And I think uh, in many cases, it's who's running the sports, like the NHL, NFL, 
Uh, NFL is moving in the right direction. I don't see NHL doing anything huge. They're all going to have to get their heads together and figure out how do we get younger people interested in these sports? Because if they don't, 10 years from now, everybody's going to be hurting. I think an Amazon or a gambling company is going to step up. But Jim, it doesn't matter who the sponsor, the sponsor's not going to chip up unless the sport or the activity has done something to change what they're presenting. I mean, it's what I call pounding the, the round peg into the square hole. If you hit it hard enough, it's going to go. Well, it isn't going to go. Don't get mad at me, Warren. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. That was Hot Rock Topics. Uh, we're going to whip along to Mailbag, brought to you by Nestle Boost. Complete nutrition to fuel your day. So uh, here's an email from Braden Sinclair. First of all, thank you guys for doing an awesome job, particularly Jim. No, I'm making that up. Uh, (laughs) I'd like to address the topic of competitive junior curling. I'm 18 years old, and I've been to three nationals, so I guess I'm hoping I can show you guys the perspective of being in this. In the eyes of us juniors, definitely more negatives came out of this from the age switch than positives. If we're trying to uh, be better at the world level, I think we should start by allowing imports. I see no reason to restrain junior teams with residency rules more than the Briar or the Scotties. Would love to hear your uh, thoughts on this, fellas. Uh, Warren, what do you think? Well, I think he makes some really good points. I, I guess, uh, you know, it's we, we've talked about this a bit, but uh, there's a bunch of juniors moving around the country to be together, uh, just like there are in men's and women's, but it's never brought to the light much. But there's, there's enough of them to be concerned with it. The age for juniors should be going up, not down. And Canada is now going to have their juniors popping out at 20 versus the rest of the world, 21. I don't think it helps us from that point of view. And again, the whole structure of this Canadian Junior Championship, we're focusing it on on trying to produce the best junior team we can, yet we're involving, again, these masses. And we need to involve the masses, but not when it comes to determining our best junior teams because it's just like the men's and women's. There's only a few who are going to get into that category. So uh, whatever Canada's going to do here moving forward, they need to look at end the world and moving, I think, to junior age to 22, not to 20, because you're just not ready, as Kevin Cooey said in an interview last week, to be out there in the men's and women's world when you're 20 or 21 years old. Yeah, well, there's no, no, no question about that. And, and uh, as far as being able to uh, import and move around, there's an age for that. I think junior is probably okay. I'd sure like to see you know, U15, U4, you know, the, the kids at 14, 15, 16 years old sort of stay in their area because then it's affordable. Costs a lot to, to fly and to stay in hotels all the time and, and, and all of that. If you can play and practice, say, 60% or 70% of your games sort of in your region uh that's great and then if you want to if you can get to a a championship of some sort be it a a canadian or be it a a tour a junior tour championship or whatever it may be great and that's kind of a one you 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 save money and you raise fundraise and and get your team there i think that's important I, i like to see young kids uh staying in their area so that you can attract more kids more people playing at a young age but then there has to be an age where you start to build teams that can compete with the rest of the teams in the world. For example, when Minji Kim came out with her team, she was 19 competing in the women's uh, worlds. My point is that we have countries coming out that have uh, tremendous young talent and the, the teams are built to win early. And so this is what I think is important at some point, now maybe it's 17 or 18 years old, 19, some, somewhere in there to be able to start to travel and, and build these terrific teams to compete at a world stage. Cause it's coming. The, the average age of curling champions just keeps going lower and lower and lower and lower. So we've got to be ready when these uh, young athletes get into the early 20s. They've got to be good and they've got to build good teams, understanding that, you know, curling is a chess game. It takes a little time to get super good at it. But I don't know. Uh, the average age at the Grand Slams that are winning these things now, just the average age just keeps going down. It's, it's wonderful to see. But it's pretty much the rest of the world that they're putting forward the younger players that are competing. I mean, most of the top teams in the Canadian side um, are still older. There's some younger people on those teams, but uh, overall, I think we're we're older than the rest of the world, do you not think? Yeah, Matty Dunstone's, uh, yeah, he's one of our young up-and-coming stars. But you're right, most of our top athletes are over over the age of 30. Yeah, you know what, though? I, I, think, there's, I think there's way too much weight put on this thing about the cutoff for junior curling. I mean, who cares if a guy's 23 or even 24 and is a junior curler? You know, you wouldn't want Connor McDavid, Kevin, if he came to your team 
and he's a wicked player at 16 or 17 to to not be able to you know promote the game and be able to play so you know who who I, I don't mean to dismiss it but who cares if it goes to 22 or 21 or 23 we're developing categories now we've got a U24 U25 where we've got actually specific events for people at that age but at the world level, we have competitions for juniors that are now 21 years of age and under. Uh, they talked a couple of years ago about making it 22. I think that's a decision that they should consider again. And I think Canada needs to take a hard look at what they're doing because I don't think it's the best approach to life to producing the best uh, curlers going forward. Like, were you ever scared, Kevin, when you were 19, playing a guy who was 23 or 4 or 5? Well, no, you know, when you're scared, you're probably going to lose. <laughs> not scared but we got kicked around pretty good by the older people that's for sure when we were young but but that's all part of growing in sport you, right. you, you, you take it on the chin a bit when you're young to Braden, it was Braden Sinclair to Braden's point um, being able to maybe move a little bit more to build really good teams depending on where you're from there should be an age to that I don't think it should be 12 years old and start making super teams at 12 because right. I, 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 we need to have build the foundation lots of kids first and then at some point, we, we need to start to uh, allow kids to, to build these really good teams to compete at the world stage. When is that, Jim? I don't know the answer, but somewhere in the late teens. Okay, boys. Uh, very good. Uh, thank you for that email, Braden. And if you want to email us, do it at insidecurling at gmail.com. Thank you for the mailbag segment. In the House is brought to you by Goldline. Goldline curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world. Plus, there are retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, and Mississauga, and they've got two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of Curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. Listen to the Inside Curling podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In the first two chapters of Painting the Pitch Red, we covered the Canadian men's national team's rise and fall. Now it's time for our triumph. It started to take off and people started to see it more. And then a big shift for me was the next generation of people born. There are Canadian kids popping up in my feed every week. You know, now when you say you're from Canada, people are asking me about Alfonso Davies. What do you do in between those moments is, is crucial for any career. Canadian soccer fans had never seen anything like that. It was just like being in your office again. We were screaming out for that professional environment. This isn't just a tournament. This is a celebration of a lot of things. And it was just such a brilliant Canadian moment to be part of. They are must-watch TV. Listen, wait for that World Cup in 2026. Yeah, I was pretty overwhelmed by the whole thing. The Canadian men's national team will never fail to qualify for a FIFA Men's World Cup ever again. To relive our climb to the greatest stage in sports, listen to Painting the Pitch Red, Chapter 3. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Okay, here we go. Uh, I was going to start about uh, 15 seconds ago, but everyone started laughing at me with my question. Okay, so I said we're re-rolling. Okay, we're going to re-roll. We've got a fantastic guest coming on right now, and uh, Joel Return as the skip of Team Italy. Check this out, okay? They won this week's Grand Slam, okay, which is historic, because I asked, how many slams have you won? And then the boys said, well, this would be the first one that, you know, Italy's won. Italy has represented the country in the world eight times. They've been to 14 European championships. They've been to three Olympics, 06, 18, and 22 they want a bronze at the Worlds in 2022. Joel's knocking at the door, okay? It's me knocking. Thanks, Joel, for joining us. More importantly, though, Joel, the boys are going to ask you a bunch of curling stuff. I want to know where they slid it in your Wikipedia page that you breed and race horses. Is that true, or did someone make that up? 
it is true, but it's not true. Like it was true. Let's say so. I don't do that anymore. I used to breed quarter horses. I've done it for many, many years. My, my family owns a, a ranch in Italy and that's where we used to breed horses, but we're now out of this business and uh, it was very demanding and, you know, you had to spend a lot of time to do this kind of job and I couldn't do it with, anymore with, the, with so much curling going on. And so that's why I quit it, but still a great passion I have. I, I enjoy going to horse shows and uh, stuff like that. I, I'm a little bit cowboy inside, let's say so. Oh, that a boy. Oh, that's why we love you here in the West. Yeah. Uh, tell us about Joel Retornez and uh, Italy as, you know, they, they've been on the scene for a long time now. How did you get involved in curling? When did it all start for you? I get asked this question quite often, and uh, I always answer that I was lucky enough to grow up in a place in Italy where curling is, is played. And there are not so many places in Italy where curling is played. I would say there are around, around six or seven places. But I was lucky enough to grow up. My mother is from that place. It's a small town near near Trento. It's called Cembra in the north in the Alps. Curling has been in this town since the early 70s. Like every little kid in the town, I, I tried curling as well. Everybody had to try this, this sport, this train sport. And uh, I tried it. I liked it. I was also in the soccer team, but when, when they told me I was the second goalkeeper, I realized maybe maybe <laughs> soccer was not my my best sport. So I moved to curling, and uh, I've been practicing since since ever, and uh, I really liked it, and maybe also some, some talent brought me to, to where I am today. Give us an idea, Joel, of what this means for Italy, and when you got back home, you won this Grand Slam, you've done so well all the appearances that you've done in Worlds and Olympics and everything. What is this like for Italy and, and how are they embracing you? Of course, it means a lot to us first because we know how much effort and how much sacrifices we've done to, to get to this level. And it means a lot to our country too because we're not a big curling country. We have uh, around 300 curlers in our country. And so it, it's quite big to win a slam. It's quite big to medal at the Europeans, to medal at the Worlds, to win a gold medal in mixed doubles at the, at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. We're doing pretty well, and uh, that's the best moment to do it because we're going to host the, the Games in 2026 in, in Italy. So we have all teams qualified already. It's now or never that curling can, can really grow in Italy because we're doing great results, and uh, we will host the Games, as I said, in 2026. So I'm looking forward to uh, three more exciting years. Who were your curling heroes growing up, Joel, and, uh, or, or your mentors? Yeah, there is one uh, taking part of this podcast. I saw him playing because there are some players nowadays that didn't see him playing because they're much younger than I am. I started curling in 1994, so he was still on the scene. And uh, for sure, the, the Big Bear was one of my, my favorite heroes. Speaking of the Big Bear, go ahead, Kev. Oh, where do we start? Well, first of all, congratulations on a massive win. Um, Mike Harris said something very interesting uh, to me. As soon as you won with the Olympics coming in uh, 2026 to you, he says, as soon as you win a Grand Slam, that means you can win anything. Your thoughts on that? I think that the the slams have the highest level of curling you can find in, in the curling scene. The level is higher than European championships. The level is higher than, than world championships and also the Olympics. Because the answer is, is quite obvious. You get to play more teams from the top countries. Let's say, for example, Canada. I know this time Canada had only two teams in the playoffs and we had lots of European. But still, uh, if you're unlucky... If I can say so, you play Canada three, four times in the slam, while at the, the Worlds you play them once. And uh, the same can happen with uh, other other nations like uh, Switzerland and Scotland and uh, the best curling nation in Sweden as well. So so I would say the, the level is much higher in, this, in the slams. But of course, the, the Olympics are uh, every four years and there is a lot of different pressure, a lot of different also expectations from, from the Olympics. Uh, sometimes I, I feel like they're a bit overrated, but that's the way it is. And everybody wants to medal at the Olympics, but the level is very high in all these events. But I've, I got to play only four slams so far. And I can say that the field is very, very tough. And for example, two slams ago, like in early October, we went 0-4. One week after, we went 4-0, and and we had to play the, the playoffs. So the field is so strong, and everything is unpredictable. After the sixth end, so you had full control, and then Bruce Mallett made that crazy angle raise double for two to bring the score to 4-2 to two in fifth. But coming back in the sixth, I'd love to get your thoughts on the team's feelings, because uh, all of a sudden, the lead 
you went to play the tick shot and he threw like takeout weight. And then the next one goes right to the back 12. And uh, we paid a real close attention to your eyes and to your facial expressions. It seemed to me that under extreme pressure, obviously, like you're in a slam final and you've got control. I'd love to hear how you're feeling because it looked to me like the necktie was getting tight. Yes, we, we kind of felt the pressure after N5. We, we tried to think in a different way. We were thinking they got their dues, which they could have get in any other way. With the corner guards, we know that the opposition can, if they play a good end, they can get two. So that's what we tried to think and not thinking that he made a crazy run double in five to, to get the two. It's easier to say than to than feel it, uh, of course, because uh, you know that if he misses that shot, you have the game won already after five. We tried to cancel and to look at the scoreboard and uh, thinking we're two up and uh, we had the hammer, so we had full control of the game. We only needed one and six, so that's why we, we tried to play the tick shot. Pressure was on, and so we wouldn't have a good setup. Then luckily, uh, Amos and Sebastiano made two great double peels, and uh, we had the middle open, and we, we were able to, to score one, uh, even though it was not that easy. But that was perfect for, for our game plan, and uh, three up in the seventh was our goal, and uh, after, after he made that great shot. yeah. But you just have to look forward and look at the scoreboard like uh, they made an easy deuce. No, exactly. One one last question, and I'll let Warren go. Uh, behind you, usually pictures go in frames. <laughs> are you are you doing this show from a from an art gallery without art, or what's going on? These are the frames I'm gonna fill in with my slam titles, but uh, I, I I didn't have time to, to print the first one. No, no, I'm I'm just kidding. It's my wife wanted this this kind of frames. Uh, I like it. It's it's fun. It's a bit different. That's the way I am too. You know, I'm a bit different. Not uh, I don't go with the the mass. I just try to do something different than than everybody does. Obviously, you're very creative. That's a beautiful decoration. And Martin doesn't have a creative bone in his body. Okay, so he doesn't understand any of that. <laughs> True. <laughs> go ahead, Warren. Joel, thanks for joining us, and congratulations on that great win. I I want to go back to the. Uh, the event for a couple of seconds and talk about the semifinal game. And we saw you play a semifinal game against Botcher and then a final game against Mowat pretty much very differently. That game against Botcher, six consecutive blank ends. You didn't have the hammer in any of those ends. However, that game was played very defensively versus the, the final game, very offensive. And as you just talked with Kevin, even when you were up and in control, still very aggressive. So what happened in that game against uh, Botcher that it ends up six ends without a score? I think in the semifinal, we ended up playing very defensively because they didn't want to play very offensive either. Uh, they had the hammers, so they had to make a move if they wanted to, and they they didn't really build anything, so I think they were fine. We knew we had to go all in sooner or later, and that's what happened in the seventh. We didn't felt like we had to to create something because they had the hammer and we were we were ready for them and uh, as I said they were fine to to play that way and we were fine too even in the six we could have put up a center guard but we we realized if they want to play the corner they play the corner so let's go in the rings and see what happens they played another blank in the six and uh, with my last shot it was all in uh, they if he if he makes that uh, backline tap. Of course, we lose the game, and uh, they made a small mistake there. We, we we still had a chance with the two center guards, and uh, we went all the way for for the steal, and we we did it. And uh, of course, we, we we were pretty good in the eighth, also to to force them to one. I had to make a double; uh, it wasn't easy. But uh, if you want to win a slam, you have to make these kind of shots, and that's what the team expects from me. It's not like we, we really wanted to play that way, but uh, as soon as we realized they didn't want to play too aggressive, we as in, we were fine. And uh, we knew that uh, staying in the game with the team was, was not bad for us because if they get an early lead, maybe then the, it's impossible to come back. So in in the final, uh, it was a bit different because uh, Mawet's team tried to push hard from the first hand. They went with the corners and uh, we had the hammer in the first, so... We had to take one in our in the first because we were forced to one. But from the second end, the score was different. It was not 0-0. Zero, zero. It was one up for us. So they went uh, aggressively. And uh, I don't need to tell you how good that team is. So we we know that if we want to fight them, maybe playing too defensive is not the best uh, the best way to do it. And uh, 
we tried to give them uh, the toughest shot, uh, as tough as possible. And uh, we were hoping for some mistakes from them. And uh, Bruce had lots of difficult shots to play. He had to play runbacks and uh, crazy shots all the time. And, um, you know, he's a good player, but sometimes he can miss. And uh, we were hoping for their mistakes and trying to make their, their job as tough as possible. Let's uh, talk about your circumstances as a team. You're living in Switzerland. Other three guys are in Italy. How does that impact your your practicing and working together as a team uh, to go to events and so on? Do you spend time in Italy with them or do they come to Switzerland or how does that all work? As I said before, I grew up in a small town in Italy. That's my my mom's town, Cembra, but I moved to Switzerland a few years ago. That small town is the place where my teammates live and I still have a house there. So I go there from time to time. But honestly, this year we didn't have so much time to practice because we played so much from uh, mid-August. We've been on tour like every single week and almost. So we didn't practice very much uh, individually nor as a team. We met each other a couple of days, two, three days for real practice as a team. But we didn't have any other chances to meet this year because uh, we were we're playing so much every weekend, and which is, I think, at our level, maybe is the best practice because you get to play uh, a lot of uh, tight games, a lot of under-pressure situations, so we, we like that kind of practice. If I have to practice with my team, I, I usually join them in Italy. Otherwise, I have a few rings here in Switzerland. Curling is very popular in Switzerland, so I have some places where I can go and practice uh, both alone and uh, with my coach, Claudio Pescia, who also lives in Switzerland. So one quick question, and I'll flip it back to Kevin. A very simple one. You're in a very small country, not many curlers. How did you guys get so good? I'm watching your deliveries, your releases. It's as good as there's out there. How did all that happen? For example, I've been around for a few years now. I started curling in 1994, as I said before, so... I've been around the curling scene for a while and uh, so there's lots of practice uh, for me in in the past years and uh, even uh, Amos and Sebastiano now they're still young but they're starting to be veterans in in curling because when you're in a in a small country the advantage is that you get to play Europeans and worlds every single year like our playdowns to get to to become the national team are not that tough like they could be in other countries Canada for instance so we can have a lot of experience when we play those events every year. So this is one one key part for sure of our success. The other part is like technique. Yes, we do believe technique is uh, is very important. And so we, we practice a lot on that, especially early in the season. That makes your life so much easier when then you have to deliver a rock if you have a good technique. The amount of rotation and you have to put on the rock and you're consistent with that. That makes it easier for, for the thrower and for me calling the game. And the other aspect is that I have my sweepers in my team. And nowadays, uh, sweeping is, is, so, is so important. I, I watched the game yesterday when, when I got home. I watched the, the final. And I don't remember if uh, you, Kevin, or um, Mike mentioned that we can be a little bit off broom and then we can adjust the shot we, with the sweeping. We can be a little bit inside or outside and then we can make with the brushes. And this is true. And nowadays, sweeping is a big, big part of curling and uh, we, we practice a lot of, uh, on that, and uh, my teammates are just brilliant doing that. And um, you, you need to get used to call because uh, they're so effective that once they sweep to make the, the rock curl, if you, if you call too early, you, you can lose that rock. So you need to get used to that. And this is also part of uh, practice, and that's why we're all, also playing lots of games. But uh, I would say that sweeping is definitely uh, a weapon that we have in the team. A lot of teams have one side covered with, a, with somebody who can really move it, like an EJ Harnden, say, you know, something like that. Not many teams have, I don't know if Amos is going to be mad at me or not, but I think it's pretty even, your two sweepers, when you, when you, when you throw. It seems to me, I don't know which one's stronger. Um, and that's a bit unusual. So there's lots of talk going on now. Uh, you, you wouldn't hear it in Canada because you're only here once in a while. But we've got Italy now, with a tremendous men's team, obviously, mixed doubles team, obviously. Stefania, people are going to realize they don't really know how good she is yet, but they're going to. And now you've got the, a real good ladies team. And then we see growth in places like Turkey and all over the world. There's just incredible growth in this great sport of ours. Do you guys ever talk about that? Like in Canada here, we're, we talk about it a lot because this this week we only, um, on the men's side, only two of the eight 
quarterfinalists were Canadian. Lots on the women's side this time. But just, I guess, the changing of curling and growth of nations that were traditionally not curling nations. Uh, of course, we do talk about that, especially because we know we've got something good going on. You know, and uh, having the, the Olympics uh, at home, it, it takes away a lot of pressure. I think the the men's team and the mixed doubles team is probably good enough today to to qualify, even though we wouldn't be a host country. But uh, the ladies are very close to it. Being qualified already, of course, that takes away a lot of pressure, and we can really focus on a three years program. And uh, because it's not four years anymore, it's almost three years. So we can focus on that and really work in the right direction with no pressure and try to to build something good for for the 2026 games. Yeah, and uh, we we know that we are a growing country, and uh, but the numbers are still a bit too small in Italy because it's all focused on, on a few teams. Like in men's team, we we have some juniors. They actually uh, got the second place today in the, the World B uh, Junior Championship. So they qualify for the A Championship. There is not a lot of competition in our country. And uh, if one day, like we probably going to stop because we had enough as a team and maybe two players decide to quit uh, I really hope that uh, we can build some some new teams, some juniors, inspire people. That's that's also one of our mission to to inspire people in in our country and uh, and let them understand that even though we are a small sport, it's a, we're a small country in curling. You can get to to very high levels with dedication, practice, and sacrifices. As I said, uh, I'm I'm 39 years old now, and it took me a while to get to the, to this level. Uh, there are teams that uh, and and players that get very successful much earlier than uh, than 39. Maybe some players also very successful have already quit at 39. I, I try to inspire young players and uh, to keep believing in what they do. And uh, with passion, you can you can get to any level. Curling is a team sport. We know, so you need also good teammates. And uh, I couldn't do it without my teammates. And I'm so proud of them and the way they play. And I think yeah, we have a very good team now. Joel, how long has that team been together? Myself, Amos, and Sebastiano, we've been playing together on and off since 2014. I've been following them since they were juniors, so I've been involved with them for, for many, many years. In the same team, Amos and I since 2014. Sebastiano took a break for a couple of years, but then came back around 2016, 17, something like that. And uh, Mattia, the lead, joined the team this year. We we made a, a change in the, in the lineup, and uh, so he's uh, he's fresh in the team. We want to have a fresh energy, and uh, he definitely brought it to to the team. And uh, we can see that it's working well so far. And and uh, do you guys curl full time? The three other guys are full time curlers, and uh, there are some programs in Italy, and they're in the army. Let's say so so in a way that you can understand. So they they get paid by the army to to be professional curlers this is very helpful because uh, that's they can play full-time and they can practice full-time and they they get the salary so they don't need to to worry too much about money and this is very helpful i'm too old for this kind of programs because i'm 39 now and uh, i i hope the, these programs were available when i was 18 because i definitely would have uh, would have done something like that. So they're available since 2018 in Italy when the army opened this kind of opportunities for the athletes. So myself, I'm a, I'm a businessman and uh, can put a lot of time in, in curling. So I'm, the only difference between them and me is that I, I don't get a salary, but I put as much effort and as much time as I do. So that's the only difference. Where did you learn English so well, being from Italy? I've always liked to study languages. I was born in Geneva, Switzerland, because my father is Swiss and my mother is Italian. So I already grew up learning two languages, French and Italian. And then I studied English and German at school. I have a sort of a talent for languages. And then in 2013, I moved to, to China. That's when I took a break from curling. I went to China for seven months to study Chinese as well. So I, I speak five languages and uh, English is also the um, curling language. I've always spoken English with uh, curling players around the world and my coaches, former coaches from Canada. I've always enjoyed speaking English and I think that's why I can speak English fluently. And I watch uh, English movies as well. What was your behind the decision 
to move to China to learn Chinese. Why, why did you do that? I was at the end of uh, a story in, uh, with, with a curling team. Uh, my former curling team, they all stopped. And so there was not much move going on in Italy. So it was difficult to compete at high level. At the time, I was, uh, I was working. I, I had my own company. We were selling raw materials that we used to buy in China. Mm -hmm. And uh, I realized that to, to do business with Chinese people, it was, uh, it was good to know that their language and to communicate with them in Chinese and uh, to give us a, a boost to the company. So I said, okay, I'll do it. Uh, I took seven months and uh, I went to Shanghai and studied the language for seven months, went to school in the morning and talked to people in the afternoon. And in seven months, I was able to speak Chinese. That, that is unbelievable. Th this just in, Chinese is not an easy language to learn. <laughs> Kevin and Warren have often spoken about the success of teams and how are they doing it. And one of the things that comes up all the time is when we look back last week, for example, uh, some of the teams have already played twice as many games as other teams, and uh, it's showing from time to time. What, what would you tell teams, Joel, who are coming up with your success now? How much time would you spend practicing or would you spend more time playing games? What, what, what would be your balance there? It depends where you are at, at that moment, like what point of your career. As I said before, I practiced a lot. I practiced a lot in the past. And all the practice I, I did in the past I can feel it's there now because uh, I'm, I'm confident uh, with my technique. I'm confident with my feeling for, for the weight and everything. So I'm at the point of, of my career that I think for me, it's very important to play games, to feel the game taste, to feel the pressure, uh, to, to play the last shots. And, and you cannot do that in practice, I think. It's very tough to, to reproduce that in practice. You have to play games to do that. So... If you're a young player and you you really want to be successful, I think you have you must have a, a good technique and it's very important to practice. But uh, what, then moving on and when you're getting more solid and everything, games are so important because you can have the feelings in games that you cannot have in, in practice. So 50-50 is an easy answer. It's maybe too easy, but it really depends uh, at what point of your career you're at. You've been listening to Joel Retornez. Uh, he's been our guest, of course. And uh, Joel, this was unbelievable. I had no idea about your background and your personal life. And uh, I got a feeling if we bring you on again in six months, you will know five more languages. Uh, that would... <laughs> Well done. Congratulations, Joel, on your recent success and, and everything you've done in the past and going forward. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joel. Hey, thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. Good luck. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Okay, so there you have it, boys. Uh, love that guy, Joel. You know, his personal life is totally intriguing, uh, but watch for him, as you guys said. So there you go. That's another show in the books. Warren only got mad at me twice, Kev. Okay, that's pretty that's good. Okay. It's coming down. It's coming down. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, starting this week, uh, there will be a new edition of Inside Curling dropping called Way Inside with John Cullen, so watch for that. Thanks a lot to Rod and his company, In-House Strategies. He handles all of our Facebook stuff. Uh, if you don't belong to Facebook, uh, we invite you to join. It's a very lively group with a lot of back and forth. And Warren is very present on it. So uh, do that. You want to email us, insidecurling at gmail.com. Also, send us some emails in the next five days because we're planning a special email show just before Christmas. Uh, we will dedicate most of the show to emails. Uh, don't miss next week's podcast if we have a guest We'll be making a special announcement. Hmm. How come you don't tell me those, Warren? You're leaving me just with, with a surprise. Uh, it's going to be right here on Inside Curling, and I am told it's a big one. 
Thanks a lot again to Sports Interaction Coyote Boost and Goldline for making Inside Curling possible. Take it easy, boys. Ho, 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 ho. Merry <laughs> Christmas, everybody. Ho, 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 Thanks, Santa Jim. <laughs> okay, good. Thanks, Jimmy.